The Pulse of Providence with Steph Machado on WPRI.com. Hello, and thanks for watching Pulse of Providence. I'm Steph Machado. In today's episode, the race for House District 12 in the city of Providence, the incumbent representative Joseph Almeida decided not to run for re-election, and there is a two-way Democratic primary between Carlos Cedeno and Jose Batista. Mr. Cedeno did not agree to be interviewed for this program despite numerous requests. And so joining me now is Mr. Batista. Thanks for joining me, Jose. Thank you for the invitation. It's always great to be with you. So you, uh, your current role and where people might know you uh, from in public life is as the executive director, which is the Providence External Authority, which um, has oversight over the police. You took this position last year. I first just want to know, are you planning on staying in that role if you win election to the House? Absolutely. I've been honored to serve as the executive director of FARA. I have no intention of stepping aside or, as far as I know, there's nothing, uh, I'm not planning to do anything differently. It's been an honor to serve in that capacity, the same way to be an honor to serve in the legislature, and I look forward to continuing to do both. And tell me why you decided to run for this House seat, particularly when you, you know, you did start a new job last year. I'm sure it's been consuming as new jobs are, and Para, you know, has been trying to rebuild or build from the ground up and get a little bit more teeth in terms of its authority. What made you decide that you would run for office at this time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it, right? Just seeing the sort of work we're trying to do at Para and realizing all the more work there is to do. There are obviously state laws that affect the work of Para, that affect policing, that affect criminal justice as a whole, which involves a lot more than policing, the courts and the prisons and everything else. And so there's just so much work that needs to be done. And, you know, this summer we're happy to have one of those moments similar to what we had four years ago when, when Colin Kaepernick first, you know, not that he was the first person to bring attention to racial injustice in policing, but that was obviously a big summer in terms of racial injustice. This summer, unfortunately, we've seen more examples of just sort of the national tragedies and, and trying to understand how that fits into the everyday, right? It's not, obviously we kind of pay attention when we see these big things happen, but it's understanding all the small things that happen that lead to a situation like that. And so there's just so much work that needs to be done, not just with criminal justice, but we do go down the spectrum of issues, affordable housing, education, you know, being somebody who's lived in South Providence my entire life and an attorney who served this community. Um, I just, you know, I've, I've always tried to contribute in one way or another, whether it was as a private attorney, as a public defender or anything else. And I think of my run for, for state rep as an extension of that service and that effort. Has working for para or working on police issues, did that help spur you to run? Does that, has that changed anything about how you feel about police issues? Will you bring those views to the state house? I mean, I've been in the journey for five years and I've been a resident here my entire life. You know, my role at Para, I, I try to be intentional about what I do there. It's obviously an independent, impartial uh, role. And, and that's important, right? Because at Para, for as much as is going on and as much temptation as there is to, to opine on the, on the most recent things going on, we really have tried to build an infrastructure based on policy, based on um, just really getting to the understanding of the infrastructure, right? Because if we respond to one case at a time, I don't think that creates a good system. And so we're trying to create a system not only to address the complaints and the issues we're getting, but also change policy. And so I think in terms of my perspective that I bring to the state house, it would be a little bit more my experience as a public defender, my experience, you know, where I represented thousands of people in our 
courts and I understood the patterns of different cities and towns. When I was a public defender, I represented folks from maybe 16, 17, almost half or maybe more than half of all the cities and towns of Rhode Island. And so it's bigger than Providence, it's bigger than, than my current day job. It's, it's, it's a lot more going on. And that's the broader perspective that I bring to the State House. I look forward to bringing to the State House. What do you think needs to change in policing? This has obviously been a major topic right now. Um, and I'm also curious what you think about defunding or decreasing funding to the police. Yeah, I think we of Terra have not, um, have not uh, taken a position in terms of defunding. I think what we've set up Para is, and we made one proposal in terms of um, moving away from a model where police are policing themselves through the Office of Professional Responsibility. And we've said to the city very clearly, we should not have that model. We should move to a model where civilians are doing the oversight. And the reason for that is, I think just like in any job, after years of doing the same thing, your perspective changes. And we wanna make sure that the perspective at the center of police oversight and police work is the civilian perspective. Because the same way that um, we as voters, we as people, we as civilians, uh, want our government to be better, we want our governor to do things, we want our mayor to do things, we want our representative city council to do things. The police department is part of the government. And part of what you're seeing, and to answer your question about how to improve policing or what we need to improve in policing, in my opinion, again, having been a public defender, somebody who's been on the ground and doing the work in the trenches, I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding and a gap in between the way civilians understand what is a stop, what is a seizure, what is a search, when do the police have the rights to do these things, right? There have been ongoing conversations about knowing your rights, but there's a fundamental disconnect between what's happening um, between civilians and police, right? We're thinking about the interactions between civilians and police. And so in my opinion, and something we've been trying to do at Para is more community outreach, right? So that we can understand both the civilians, right? What it means when the police stops you, what rights you have, what are Miranda rights, but also the police. Uh, for example, recently you've seen an uptick in, in gun violence in Providence, and so the immediate reaction of everybody is, well, we need to do more to get guns off the street. And, you know, pretty simple to agree with that statement, right? Nobody wants there to be rogue guns on the street. But the, my question is, and as an attorney and in my capacity as para, is what are we doing to get guns off, off the street? Because there is, it is possible to try to get guns off, off the street and in that effort actually make the problem worse, right? There's a lot of times where... I'm sorry? Oh, what do you mean by that? How does it, how can it make the problem worse? So for example, what I've seen as a public defender and so many times stop and seizure, right? If, if police, if we allow in our society, whether it be Providence, Rhode Island, the United States, for police to stop anybody at any time for any reason, not only is that gonna put more people into the criminal justice system and make their lives difficult, not likely to get student loans to go to school, not likely to keep their job if they have one or keep their housing if they have one, right? Kind of push more people into poverty. Um, but it's also just a really dangerous concept, right? And so we have to constantly be pulling ourselves back. And I wanna, again, I wanna make the same point. It's not just about police, it's government as a whole, right? We're always talking about how to make government better, more efficient. You know, a few years ago at the federal level, we were talking about government having, uh, you know, the national security concerns, they were spying on our cell phones and things like that. So it's that sort of thought of government, right? Drawing the lines of where their power is supposed to be because if they abuse their power, whether it be intentionally or not, or maliciously or not, the bottom line is that that's bad for us, right? And part of the reason is, again, it introduces more people to the criminal justice system, but it ultimately makes us less safe. And so it's not easy, it's not simple, but part of our role as para is balancing out that perspective, right? We don't just want one party uh, to govern that conversation. We want civilians to be a part of that conversation to understand and shape what those interactions are gonna look like.
And I understand that that para might be neutral on the issue of defunding police, but you as a political candidate, I think your constituents want to know where you stand. Do you think funding should be cut to police as the activists have argued to be, you know, used to fund other priorities or do you think it should stay the same or or increase, for example, hiring more officers? Yeah, you know, for me, it's not necessarily about more or less police. I think it's about the system. Um, and I know many police officers, both from my private life and in my capacity as para. And it's not, you know, I kind of shy away from this conversation about good apples versus bad apples. It's really about the system. There's so many things in our history in this country that have been legal, or even in the history of the world that have been legal, that have not been okay. In genocide, slavery, Jim Crow, all of that was legal. And so my concern, both as a candidate at para, uh, or anything in between is about how do we fix the system? Because you can have, you know, there's what, 450 police officers, you can have 450 extraordinary people, but if they work in a system that is corrupted, that allows them to search more people than they should, or arrest more people than they should, or profile more people than they should, then the result is going to be bad. And so I've, I've, I don't think the solution to this is in, is in the funding. I think it's in the system. Whether that's related to the funding, I think we'll have to, uh, figure out. There's obviously a lot of work going on here. This is not something we're going to figure out in a day, but I just keep coming back to what are the rules that govern this, right? And how can we make sure that those rules are not only fair on their face, but also achieve a fair result, because that's um, ultimately what we're trying to do. What, what will top priorities be if you're elected? What legislation will you introduce in January? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, I'm somebody who's been uh, involved in, um, in government for, you know, pretty much my entire career. I have in the past testified at the State House in favor of uh, licenses for undocumented folks, in favor of making CCRI and public universities either less expensive or completely free for our young people. So those are things that I've supported in the past that I'll continue to support in the future. Um, I think, you know, I grew up middle class, South Providence. Uh, you know, I, my story is uh, one of, uh, what can I tell you? You know, I believe strongly in the minimum wage because I know what it's like to live off the minimum wage. And I think it should be a living wage, which is not. I think we need to make it $15 an hour and tie it to inflation so that we're not in a situation where we're paying bucks, we're paying folks seven, eight, nine dollars an hour when rent is twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars an hour and make it impossible for somebody to make a living based on the minimum wage. I think that here in South Providence, for example, where I'm born and raised, um, we have a disproportionate amount of children who suffer from asthma and that has to do with the environmental justice that takes place down here we live so close to the port our, mm -hmm. community, our community is literally divided in half by route 95 and so we are disproportionately exposed to pollution and the sort of um, things that make you prone to asthma i'm actually asthmatic i've been asthmatic since i was born and that's an issue that's important to me and you know uh, there's other issues as well affordable housing i think the state should have a line item in their budget for housing um people are being crunched especially now in these difficult times and i would say just one last major highlight is the coronavirus right um one of the reasons why we have not seen such you know the economy fall apart completely is because the federal government has basically put in a floor under people with all the funding that they've been giving and part of my concern is you know how sustainable is that what's going to happen if we have another wave of corona at some point the government at least i hope is going to stop printing money and we're going to have to confront this issue right on and so i'm somebody who not only has a business on Broad street in my law office although it's not 
active right now due to my day job, but I know what it's like to run a business on Broad Street. I have deep, long-lasting, lifelong relationships with the business owners on Broad Street. And how do we support them so that they can continue to employ people? Because I feel like if this coronavirus continues, um, or at least continues to grow, the, the money that the government can put into this, I think is finite at some point, and we're gonna have to deal with that issue. So uh, I know I gave you a bunch, but those are some of my priorities. No, that's good. Good for the voters to have uh, more info than less. So what, what is the biggest issue you think facing South Providence right now? Um, the biggest issue, I mean, I'll tell you what I think is true. I think the thread that is common between all the issues that I just mentioned about is just inequality, right? We need to be more mindful of how a community like South Providence gets left behind. You know, a lot of times, like for example, with coronavirus, there'll be something that is, you know, there'll be a proposal by the state um, or government in general, and the community like South Providence will be left behind. The state spending however many millions of dollars, I think it was 35 million on building infrastructure for, you know, dealing with coronavirus, hospital rooms and equipment, and leaving minority contractors completely out in the cold, I think is an example of that. I'm not saying that, you know, that was an intentional decision to leave folks out in the cold, but when push comes to shove, we see that a community like South Providence is often the first one to take the hit. And so how can we advocate for South Providence? That's what I wanna do, be an advocate to make sure that when we're talking about public schools that I graduated from where 70% of the students are Latino, how are we making sure that that school gets the support it needs, right? Because the class of, you know, the Latino population is taking up an increasingly higher percentage of the state population. The future of the state, we're gonna to have to make sure that young folks today are getting an education. So we need an advocate. We need an advocate to advocate for us across the board. And the lack of having that advocacy is part of the reason why we're facing the disparities that we're facing right now. And so I don't wanna say one issue, but just that common thread of constantly being left behind in those discussions. Speaking of, of education, um... We still don't know, and I'm gonna say that we're taping this on Friday, um, August 28th. We do not know whether Providence schools will uh, reopen in person. Do you think that the school should reopen to in-person classes, at least for families who want it? I think uh, the priority there has to be safety. You know, it's a really scary situation where obviously we've had 180,000 people across the country die, over 1,000 people in Rhode Island die. So anytime we're talking about a, a disease or a virus that could be lethal, the first, second, and third priority has to be keeping folks safe. My concern is making sure that the families who need uh, Wi-Fi or virtual capacity get it. And if we reach a point where the numbers are declining and we feel that we can manage the situation, um, then absolutely. But, you know, first, second, and third priority have to be safety. I'll give you an interesting uh, tidbit and personal experience. I'm actually teaching at Bryant University, which is my alma mater. My second year as an adjunct professor, and there we're doing an interesting thing where half the class is in person and half the class is virtual, and you kind of rotate it. So it is possible to find a happy medium. I support, uh, by all means, students getting the right to have an education. But we need to make sure that it is in a, in a place that's containable. I think we saw the University of Notre Dame had to close immediately because, you know, the first weekend they were there, there was like an outburst of 100 cases. And so we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we're going to have that experience. We want to make very crystal sure that we're not there yet. One of the concerns about the hybrid model was that, you know, kids are in school a few days a week and, and interacting with each other and their teachers. And then during their distance learning days, they might have their grandparents watching them or something because their parents have to go to work. Is that an issue that folks in your neighborhood have been talking about? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, daycare and, and, and providing uh, what, you know, daycare for children has, has been an issue always. And it's just, again, one of those hurdles, right? A lot of times uh, folks in South Providence, you may be in a household that either has um, maybe one parent at home or one parent who's working and the other one who isn't. And so that's absolutely a challenge, right? That's why I don't think going to virtual 100% is necessarily the answer either, just because, again, those disparities that exist here. And so, you know, having a hybrid will give people options um, but ultimately, it has to be a tailored approach to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to not only attend, but also attend in a meaningful way. So absolutely. I want to ask you just a couple of like rapid fire questions, if you could answer in, you know, one or two words. Um, are you pro-choice or pro-life? Pro-choice. Uh, do you support legalizing recreational marijuana? Yes. How would you grade the job of Mayor Jorge Lorza on a scale of A to F? As a scale of? A through F, like school. You know, I, 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 uh, I'm going to respectfully decline to give him a grade, just, and I can't help but appreciate the uh, irony in that he was my professor once upon a time and gave me a grade, but I think... Oh, really? Yeah, uh, his, in law school, Roger Williams Law School was a professor of mine, but I'll tell oh, you Oh, that's what, funny. I think the mayor's trying, uh, obviously, very hard. I appreciate him. I think he's doing a good job. Um, he has a world of challenges, including coronavirus, public education, policing, and so I appreciate his efforts and I think he's trying hard. I look forward to working with him, whether it be as a private citizen or an elected official, because they really are an unsurmountable amount of challenges. And anybody who's a public official right now, you have to tip their hat to him because we're literally facing a combination of, you know, the 1960s civil rights movement, the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, and everything in between at the same time. And so I've never been somebody who wants to uh, deflect from what it is we're supposed to be doing, whether we have disagreements or not with our public officials. I think it's time for all of us as citizens of Rhode Island to roll up our sleeves and work hard and try to create a safer and more prosperous Rhode Island. Um, there's a, currently a budget gap on the state level. Um, presumably the budget will pass before either you or Mr. Sedano is elected, but who knows, um, or who, you know, joins the house, I should say. Um, what would you do to close that large budget gap, whether it be cuts or new revenue? I think that um, one of the things I feel most passionately about in terms of reform at the state house that will impact our economic standing is criminal justice reform. I think the way we incarcerate people is um, not only discriminatory and unfair, but it's costing us a lot of money. I think it cost last I checked upwards of $50,000 per inmate at the ACI. And there's about a third of our population at the ACI that is being held pre-trial. What do I mean? The way we use bail needs to be reformed so that we're not spending money um, excessively on holding people at the ACI. The way we use probation needs to be reformed for the same reason. Um, thinking about legalizing marijuana and making sure that anybody who's been incarcerated for marijuana not only has their uh, record expunged, but also has an opportunity to sell it legally, right? I think there's just within the criminal justice arena, um, not only is there the cost of actually incarcerating somebody, but there are the collateral costs of ripping a parent out of the home, making it more likely that the young child at home will themselves end up at the ACI. I think that if we were serious and accepted bold reform to the criminal justice system, it could go a long way towards not only addressing our budget gap, but setting us on a path to prosperity, right? 
when you come from a community like South Providence, you know what it's like to have your friends and neighbors be targeted in cases that are not fair, right? Be caught up in a situation, whether it be a drug sting and folks in the wrong place at the wrong time. I think there's a world of misunderstanding that um, is included in the criminal justice system that results in all these exorbitant costs that we're paying and suffering at the community level. So that's going to be one of the biggest things I advocate for, not only because it's morally right and socially right, but it also costs us a lot of money. And so I think that's going to be a, a, a big necessary step to fixing our budget situation now. My last question for you um, is about your opponent, Mr. Cedeno, is um, endorsed by the incumbent, Joe Almeida. Certainly some folks in your neighborhood that have supported Joe for a long time um, may decide to go with his choice. So could you just make the case for why um, they should pick you over Mr. Cedeno? They being my constituents and the voters? Correct. Yeah, like I said, a lot of the things that I've said in this interview, I'm the only person that can say that. I'm the only person who can say in this race that I was born and raised and have lived in this community my entire life. The only person that I can say that I graduated from the public schools and have run a business on Broad Street. Uh, unfortunately, Mr. Cedeno has declined several opportunities to have a public debate like this one. And so I hope he responds to your invitation. But um, to the extent that he's, you know, anything that he's offering, he hasn't been willing to come out here and publicly stated. And so I've been very clear about my entire lifelong uh, experience in service, right? I'm not running for office just because I suddenly decided I wanted to. I'm running for a state representative as an extension of the work that I've done. I literally put my law office on Broad Street so that I could represent people in my community that have done that in our courts. I'm prepared to do that at our state house. And I think I am uniquely qualified to, to make those changes and look at my record. I've testified at the State House. I have been present for the important debates of our time. I, I serve thousands of people, often for free, right? Whether in my own legal capacity or, or as a public defender. And so, you know, don't, it, it, a lot of times with these races, the, the, the best indicator of future action is past action. And when folks are comparing myself and Carlos and Daniel, I invite them to look at my record and to ask Carlos about his and make a decision based on the facts. Jose Batista, a Democratic candidate for House District 12. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. And thank you for watching Pulse of Providence. We'll see you next time.